I want you to think with me for a moment about a time in your life when you were overwhelmed by something great. I'll give you a few seconds, get that memory in your mind, maybe something with the family, maybe it was a, a, a sort of a beautiful landscape, all right? So you got to get that moment in your mind, okay? All right, I, I have one. I, I remember uh, the, a particular time sticks out in my mind when I was a teenager, and my mother and I took a trip back out west to visit family. So we flew out to California where I'm from, stayed there for a few days, and then we drove from there to Arizona where my grandmother lived, and it was just me and my mom, and my sweet mother had uh, planned for us to wake up really early one morning and drive from Bullhead City, Arizona to the southern rim of the Grand Canyon, because I had never seen it before, she had never seen it before, so she had planned this trip. Now, I remember being... um, particularly teenage on this trip, okay? Translation, I was perpetually rude and obnoxious, right? I didn't want to be there. I was, I was hanging out with my mom as a teenager. I wanted to be back home hanging out with my friends and enjoying summer. And I thought, really, we're going to get up early to drive three and a half hours to see a giant hole in the ground. Like, that was my attitude towards this trip, um, but we did, so, so we get up, we make the trek to the southern rim of the Grand Canyon, and we park, and we check into the visitor, visitor center, hang out, check all that out, and then we walk to this viewing area called Mather Point. And maybe you've had this experience before with like a landscape or something like this, but as I approach, I remember very distinctly walking through Mather Point, and I start to see the canyon appear. Has anyone been to the Grand Canyon before? Just raise your hand. Okay, a few of you, yeah. And I was overwhelmed by the greatness of what I saw. Like, yes, it's a big hole in the ground, but it's like a really big hole in the ground. And the vastness of it stopped me in my tracks, right? Now, photos don't, don't do this justice, but I did, I did bring one of Mather Point, okay? So you can see, if you can see really closely, you see people right there. That's Mather Point on the southern rim of the Grand Canyon. And look, I mean, look at that. It's beautiful, right? And a photo kind of captures a glimpse of it, but it doesn't really capture it because when you're in a a situation like that, it's not just visual, right? All senses are engaged, right? You feel the wind on your face. There's the the smell of desert air. There's this sense of danger. Like if you go over that fence, which is like this tall, you're done, right? It's, It's all over, right? I was overwhelmed by the grand display of this canyon. And I remember very distinctly not only being overwhelmed by the greatness of what I saw, but then immediately recognizing how foolish and silly I had been to grumble and complain, right? Because this sense of greatness sort of confronted me with the fact that there is something bigger than myself. And so my teenaginess, right, my pride sort of gave way to this sense of awe. Now this morning, we are in the first chapter of John's gospel. We looked at an overview last week. And what John wants us to see in this first part, this prologue, he wants us to be hit with the greatness of Jesus, much in the same way that the Grand Canyon sort of hit me in that moment, right? He's inviting us to the ledge of eternity, so to speak, to peer in and be overwhelmed by this person, Jesus Christ. 
In these first 18 chapters of the book, again, they're called the prologue to John's gospel. And what he's done is he's jam-packed these verses with rich, sort of mind-stretching theology, doctrine about Jesus, or, or what people call Christology. But it isn't the kind of theology and doctrine that's just for like, you know, people in tweed coats who work at seminaries and write books and, you know, have big libraries. This is not just heady stuff. It's meant to be hearty as well. It's meant to affect who we are. John wants us to be so overwhelmed by the greatness of Jesus that it confronts us and exposes our need of him. And what's more, not only does John show us in these verses the overwhelming greatness of Christ, he also shows us that Jesus then pursues us with his love. That same great Christ also loves us. And so as we consider the greatness of Jesus in this text this morning, we're going to observe three things. First, we're going to see the eternal Christ in verses 1 through 3. Then we're going to see the coming Christ in verses 6 through 8. And finally, we'll see the loving Christ in verses 4 through 5 and verses 9 through 13. So let's jump in. First, we see the eternal Christ. Right out the gate, John shows us that Jesus was eternally existing. In the beginning, was the word. Now notice where John begins. He doesn't start where uh, other gospel writers begin. He doesn't start with the the earthly ministry of Jesus or the birth of Jesus. He doesn't even uh, start with the Old Testament. He doesn't start with the prophecies about the coming Jesus. He goes as far back as you can go. In fact, he parallels here the very first words in the Bible. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. John is saying, before creation was established, guess who was there? Jesus was there. But he doesn't use the titles for Jesus that we're familiar with. We saw last week in chapter 20, verse 31, John calls Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. He uses a unique word here. He calls Jesus the Word, or logos in the Greek. Now, what what does this mean? Only John does this. So, Uh, What is logos? Well, it was a common word in John's day, and Greek philosophers used logos to refer to this sort of rational principle by which everything exists. It wasn't religious in in the way we understand it. It was this sort of undefined, mysterious power within. So it wasn't used in a Christian sense as John uses it here. Instead, when when people use logos, they were saying that this is the essence of the human soul, trying to explain it without God. According to these philosophers, there, there is no God, other God other than the Logos, right? Reason. Now, the Old Testament does speak of the word as well, and John has this in mind. He is, he is writing with the Old Testament in mind, and the Old Testament uses the word davar, which is word. And if you read through the Old Testament, you see that this is used to, to describe God's creative power, right? He created by speaking, Genesis 1.3. Created with his word. God also revealed himself by speaking. That's how he revealed himself to people. All throughout the Old Testament, you'll read the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. Right? The word's also used to refer to God's ability to, to bring salvation. Psalm 107.20 says, He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So John's writing with those two ideas in mind. He's a brilliant theologian, and he also knows Uh, what's going on in his day. And so it's as if he's saying, listen, those of you Greek philosophers who look to this logos, this principle by which everything exists, just so you know, that's Jesus. 
He says, those of you Jews who are well-versed in the Old Testament, and as you hear the word, you know the power of God's word to create. You know the power of God's word to reveal himself. And you know the power of God's word to save. Just so you know, that's Jesus. All of that is summed up in the person of Christ. We could say, as John Calvin put it, Jesus is the speech of God, the communication of God. And what's more, he says, he's always been there. The word has eternally existed with no beginning point. As Jesus says of himself in Revelation chapter 22, he says, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning, the first and the last, and the beginning and the end. So this is meant to stretch our minds, right? The language here, you you could actually uh, read it as, in the beginning was continuing the word. Or as one scholar put it, Jesus always was wasing, right? No, that doesn't make grammatic sense. Some of you are like, that's not a word. Right, but you get the point, right? Jesus, the word, was always there. But he goes on and he says, not only was Jesus eternally existing, John tells us that Jesus was also eternally in relationship, Look at the second part of verse one. And the word, Jesus, was with God. You could say the word was continually toward God. The Father and the Son have eternally and joyfully been in relationship with one another for eternity past. Now, though the Holy Spirit isn't explicitly mentioned here, John is giving us this glimpse into the doctrine of the Trinity. As R. Kent Hughes says, there has always existed the deepest equality and intimacy in the Holy Trinity. Jesus was eternally in relationship with the Father and the Spirit. And as we'll see in a moment, that relationship of joy and love, he didn't want to contain it. It was poured out. But there's even more here. We're still in verse one, right? Jesus is eternally existing. He's eternally in relationship. Last part of verse one. John goes on to tell us that Jesus, the word, was eternally God. And the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is not a created heavenly being like an angel, nor is he merely God-like, sort of partially divine, but a few notches below God. And this is the introduction to John's favorite and most popular theme throughout his gospel. He'll sound this note time and time again. Jesus is and always was God. And then John goes on in verse 3 to tell us that not only is Jesus eternally existing, eternally in relationship, and eternally God, he's also eternally creator. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus wasn't just present at creation, sort of checking out what, what was going on. As God, he was actively involved. He is the source of all created things. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 1. He says, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Meaning not only that Jesus has eternally, the eternally existing God created all things, but at this very moment, as we speak, he is upholding every single corner of his created universe by the word of his power. I'm overwhelmed already. Right? This is verses one through three. That's John's point. 
These are some rich theological reflections packed into three short verses. There are endless amounts of books written about verse 1 through 3 of John chapter 1. But what what is that, all of this, what does it mean for for you and me? Well, the, the first and right response to us as we consider this should be worship of him. When we're reading the Bible or we're hearing a sermon, maybe you're like me, I often search for the to-do list, right? Okay, give me something practical. Give me something with teeth in it so I can go and implement this in my family and implement this in my life, right? And there are some passages that give crystal clear commands to go and follow, but this is not one of those passages. Instead, we're meant to linger here over the greatness of Jesus, We're meant to think deeply about this until our hearts are moved to worship him. And we say with the psalmist in Psalm 113.5, Who is like the Lord our God seated on high? Who is like this Jesus? When was the last time, I had to ask myself this question this week, when was the last time you just sat or knelt or stood in awe of who Jesus is? I was reading of one uh, preacher this, this week in the 1800s who was preaching on the greatness of Christ. And uh, a mi- in the middle of his sermon, a miner, he had a lot of miners in his congregation, stood up in the back and just started singing the, the doxology. He was so overwhelmed by who Jesus was that he's like, I can't hear any more preaching. We've got to sing. So the preacher's like, all right, let's like, join in. I admit that I would be very uncomfortable if that happened. But hey, the Spirit's leading you to do it. Do it, right? Because that's the right response to Jesus. To praise him. But friends, not only do we worship him, if this is who Jesus is, he's always been there. He is God. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. And friends, you and I can trust him with the minutia of our daily lives, right? Charles Steinmetz was an engineering genius, and he was a friend of of Henry Ford. And one story sort of showcases how um, skillful and knowledgeable Steinmetz was. Ford's electrical engineers couldn't solve some problems in their automobile plant that they were having with this generator. So Henry Ford calls Steinmetz and he, he hires him. He worked for General Electric at the time. And when he arrived, he didn't need any help. He just asked for three things. I need a, a pencil, I need a notepad, and I need a cot to sleep on. Okay. So for two days, he walked around listening to the generator, sort of knocking on it here and there, not trying to fix anything, taking just copious notes, writing down equations. And then on the second day, he climbed up a ladder, asked for a ladder, climbed up a ladder, and tinkered for it, with it for a little bit. Ten minutes later, he said, flip the switch, turns the switch on, and the whole thing is running fine. That's all he did. And Ford's ecstatic. He's like, that's great. He fixed it fairly easily until he got the bill. And Steinman sent him a bill for $10,000. And, and Ford said, listen, uh, don't you think that's a little high for some tinkering? So he requested an itemized bill from Steinmetz. And Steinmetz sent him an itemized bill back that said this, tinkering, $10. Knowing where to tinker, (laughs) $9,990. And Ford paid the bill. He didn't say anything. See, all of us in here this morning, we've got areas in our lives that need work, need more than tinkering, right, if we're honest. Only Jesus, only the eternal Christ the creator and sustainer and upholder of the universe who is God, knows exactly what you need, exactly when you need it. If he upholds the universe with the word of his power, can't you and I trust him with what we're going through? 
He's worthy of worship, and he is deserving of our trust. Right? Now, we could linger here forever. We could, we could spend many sermons in verses 1 through 3, but we need to move on. Next, John moves from eternity past, and he go, comes to the coming of Jesus, which leads us to number 2, the coming Christ, verses 6 through 8. Now, we're going to come back to verses 4 and 5 in a moment, but in verses 6 through 8... What John does here, the apostle, is he introduces us to John the Baptist. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, we'll study John the Baptist uh, later on in a few weeks in in chapter 1. We'll study his ministry in more detail. But John the apostle includes this mention of him here, and it's sort of abrupt. So why would he do that? And I think it's to show us that the coming of Christ was not a surprise to people. It wasn't like God's plan B. John the Baptist was the last in a line of prophets who points us to Jesus. So he serves as this link between the Old and New Testaments, right? The Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. Malachi 3.1 gives this prophecy that's fulfilled in John the Baptist. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That verse prophesies both Jesus, but also the one who's going to prepare the messenger, who's going to prepare the way for Jesus. You see, this coming of Christ was promised all throughout scriptures, and by introducing John here, the apostle is telling us that the greatness of Christ was not only pre-existent, Right, but it's foreshadowed all throughout the prophets leading up to this final messenger, John. And we need this as a reminder. I need this as a reminder because, let's be honest, some of us, we just don't know what to do with the Old Testament, right? It's okay, you can be honest. Like, it scares us. We, we don't really understand it. Isn't it just easier to just fast forward to all the Jesus stuff? The only problem with that is all of this, Old Testament and New, is Jesus stuff. Right? And that's what the prophets show us. Graham Goldsworthy comments, he says, the most compelling reason for Christians to read and study the Old Testament lies in the New Testament. The New Testament witnesses to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the one in whom and through whom all the promises of God find their fulfillment. So I just want to consider a few of these leading up to John the Baptist that point us to the coming of Christ. John the Apostle has already shown us that Jesus was there in Genesis 1 as creator. But just a couple of chapters later in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve disobey God and sin enters the world, God tells the enemy, Satan, that one is coming who will be born of a woman who will suffer but will ultimately defeat Satan. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 7.14 that one is coming who's going to be miraculously born of a virgin. And his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Micah tells us in Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. 
Zechariah tells us that Jesus will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 prophesies the trial, the suffering, and the crucifixion of Jesus. King David in Psalm 16 tells us that God will not let his Holy One stay dead. See corruption prophesying the resurrection of Jesus. And we can go on and on and on and on. That's just seven prophets. Moses, Isaiah, David, Zechariah, Malachi, Micah, and John the Baptist. But there are several hundred prophecies of the coming Savior in the Old Testament. And all of them are fulfilled in Jesus. This was a promise. This wasn't God's plan A. It was his promise from eternity past. And he told us about it all through the scriptures. As Mark Dever helpfully puts it. I love this. This is a helpful summary of the Bible. The message of the Old Testament is promise made. The message of the New Testament is promise kept. So if you and I want to be overwhelmed by the greatness of Jesus, the reality is we have to be people who are in the scriptures, right? We have to be in God's word, sort of peer over to the canyon of God's word to see Christ there. In all of it, not just the easy stuff, not just the New Testament where it's easier to find Jesus, but in the Old Testament as well because he is the hero of this story. This is why we give away Bibles like candy, Right? You get a, it's like Oprah. You get a Bible. You get a Bible. Everybody gets a Bible, right? This is the why behind the scripture journals. This is why in our gospel communities, we want to dig in the word together because we want you to see the greatness of Jesus. You, you've heard that saying, right? Give a man a fish and you'll feed him for a day. Teach a man a fish and you've fed him for a lifetime. We should be able to fish in God's word. We should be able to study for this, this for ourselves because if we look at the scriptures, Old and New Testaments rightly, we will encounter Jesus. And when we encounter Jesus, the prayers will be overwhelmed by his greatness. And when we're overwhelmed by his greatness, our lives will be transformed by his love. We will believe and live in him, right? But friends, not only do the scriptures bear witness to the coming Jesus, This mention of John the Baptist here shows us that God chooses people like you and me to point others to Christ. Look at verses 7 and 8. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. See, God doesn't need us. God doesn't need messengers, but all throughout the Bible, God chooses fallen and flawed, yet humbled and willing women and men like you and me to bear witness to Jesus. John's an example of that. So this causes us, as we think about John the Baptist, who who in our life needs to hear about the light of Christ? Who needs to hear about Jesus? As John the Baptist pointed others to the coming Christ, we have this privilege and responsibility to proclaim Jesus to others and invite them, hey, come, come see this canyon. You've got to come see this, right? Who is that for you? Now, we see this sort of chronological movement in our passage, right? So far, we've seen the eternal Christ, looked at eternity past, and then we've moved forward. John's fast-forwarded into John the Baptist, the coming Christ, who he points to. And then lastly, we see as Jesus comes to us, we see the loving Christ. Now look back again at verses four and five. In him, Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse nine, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John loves this theme 
of Jesus as light. It's part of his parallel to the creation account, right? In Genesis 1, just as God said, let there be light and there was light. So Jesus, the word who has, has brought light into our world darkened by sin. And when John says the world here, he's not talking about something neutral. He's being very specific. Um, here he's referring to this created order of mankind and human affairs that's opposed to God. It's not neutral, but in rebellion against God. He puts it this way in 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Okay? So he's not saying everything in the world is so wicked there's nothing good that we can see here. That's obviously not true, or we wouldn't be able to be in awe of canyons, right? Or in goodness in other people, the image of God in others. But what he is saying is, as a whole, the world has rejected God. And so it's a place of darkness. And Jesus is the light, right? All that is good and right. Now, the word love actually isn't even in, in this passage. And so why would we uh, say the loving Christ here? Where do we get this idea of Christ's love being revealed? Well, if you think about it, that's what this entire passage is about. The fact that the eternal Christ in all his greatness and glory, who existed in perfect, joyful union in the Trinity relationship, the fact that he wants to communicate himself to us, a selfish and rebellious people, is a testimony to the greatness of his love. He didn't have to do that. The very title of Jesus as the word, the speech of God, shows us that God doesn't want to contain this love, though he could have. He wants, he desires to express it to us. So to say the light shines in the darkness, verse 5, and the darkness has not overcome it, is to say that the love of Christ is greater than the sin and rebellion of our world. So Jesus is bringing it to us. Jen Wilkin has this great reflection on God's love. She says, whereas our common notion of love is that it's an emotion to be experienced, biblical love is an act of the will. In other words, love does not merely feel, it acts. 259 times the Bible describes a love that acts. You see, Jesus is God's love in action to us, a dark and sinful world. As we'll see next week very clearly, he is literally God in the flesh, brought to us. And one of the reasons why light is such a, a great illustration for the loving Christ is because of the power of light, right? You've had that moment where it's dark, you wake up in the middle of the night to go get a snack, maybe that's just me, or, or do something, right? And it's really dark and you turn on the light and what happens? Show me what you do, right? You've got, your eyes have to adjust. The light's powerful, right? You're used to the darkness, right? Light's powerful. Not only that, it's fast, do you, light travels at 186,000 miles per second. I am not a scientist. I had to Google that this week. And I thought it said per hour. And I'm like, that's really fat. And then I, per second, right? Not only that, think of the extent of light. One little light can light up an entire room with brightness, right? And this is the illustration that John uses time and time again to describe Christ's willing, loving pursuit of sinners like you and me. Light is coming into this world. It's revealed in Christ. Unfortunately, John tells us that this love is rejected, though. Not only is Christ's love revealed, but it's rejected, verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people 
did not receive him. We may read that and say, man, it's kind of surprising that the eternal coming and loving Christ was rejected by his own creation, right? He wasn't accepted. The world didn't know or approve of him. His own people, meaning Israel, who knew all of the Old Testament prophecies, they rejected him. And there's a lot of reasons we could reflect on that, but, but think about the reasons we reject the love of Christ. You, you may be rejecting Christ's love today. What are some of those reasons? Well, you might think, you know what, I just, I don't deserve it. It's a common one. You say, man, you don't know what I've done. God, God could never love me because of what I've done or who I am. And you think, if only I was better, maybe, maybe I can work myself up to this point of being lovable. Right? And if that's you, the gospel says... Well, of course you don't deserve it. That's the whole point. If you deserved it, there would be no need for a loving Christ to come into the world. If a place is already light, it doesn't need more light. Darkness needs light. So what makes the loving Christ so great is not that he loves lovable people, but that he loves the unlovable. And maybe you've seen this on display this week on the news as Brant John demonstrated this Christ-like love and forgiveness to the former police officer who shot and killed his brother, Botham John, last year. Uh, Amber Geiger received a 10-year prison sentence this week for the murder of Botham John and Brant, Botham's brother, had a chance in, in the trial to speak to directly to her. And here's some of what he said. This is an amazing testimony to the love and forgiveness of Christ. He says, if you're truly sorry, I can speak for myself. I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. He says, I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. He says, I think your give, your giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. And then he says this, again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. Then he turns to the judge and says, I don't know if this is possible, but can I give her a hug, please? The judge says yes, and then he embraces her. Right? Now, did she deserve such forgiveness? No. But she needed it. And this brother, this Christ-like brother, demonstrated it in a crystal clear way to her. As Paul reminds us in Romans 5, verse 6 through 8, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, someone who may deserve it, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do we deserve this? No, but we need it. And Christ has come that we may know such love. Light has come into the darkness. So that's you. And you say, I don't deserve it. And that's what's keeping you away. No, no, no. That is what, that is why you need it the most. But maybe you're, maybe you're the opposite. As Pastor Clint talked in the the kids sermon, maybe pride's the issue. You you think, I'm a fairly good person. I'm kind. I, I pay my taxes. I go to church. I give to charity. I root for the Red Sox. I don't, I don't know where that last one came from, right? Now, and you also think, now, there are people who don't deserve God's love, like those people, those really bad people, but clearly that's not me. I, I, I deserve it. 
I make mistakes here and there, but I'm a pretty decent person. Let me just tell you as your friend, no, you don't deserve it. And deep down, you know you don't deserve it because if you were to, to create a standard this week and you would say, here's what makes someone lovable and upstanding and righteous, and then you were to try and follow that all week long, you would fall short of your own standard. I know I would. Every thought, every action, if you put it on a list and then compared it to your own standard of righteousness and what makes you lovable, you'd say, ah, I missed it. So if we fall short of our own standard, how much more do we fall short of God's standard? Right? See, no one looks over the edge of the Grand Canyon and says, I'm feeling pretty awesome right now. I'm, I'm great. I'm amazing. No, you're overwhelmed by the vastness of what you see. In the same way, no one stands in the presence of a loving God rightly understanding who he is and says, I deserve his love for me. You don't deserve it. In fact, here's a better description that Paul gives us in Ephesians 2 about what you deserve. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, here it is, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what we deserve. But here's what God gives, verse four. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. None of us deserve it, but he freely offers the love and light of Christ to us. But even these reasons for rejecting God's love aren't ultimate. The ultimate reason John will uh, tell us, Jesus will teach us in John 3 is because we love the darkness rather than the light. The root issue is a heart issue and only God can reorient the affections of our hearts from darkness to light. But here's the good news. By God's grace, he does just that. Not everyone rejects the love of Christ. And that leads us to verses 12 and 13. Some receive his love. So we've seen his love revealed, we've seen his love rejected, and we've seen his love received in verses 12 and 13. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And with these two verses, John introduces two glorious doctrines that we don't have time to get into, but he mentions them so clearly. He introduces adoption and this idea of the new birth. Look at verse 12. We see adoption clearly here. Those who receive Jesus by faith, meaning they rely fully upon Christ alone to bring them out of darkness into light, Jesus gives them the right to become children of God. You see, adoption is the act of leaving your natural family and entering into another family. And in doing so, you receive all of the privileges and responsibilities of that new family. We've already seen in Ephesians 2, what, what old family were we adopted out of? Of sin and wrath, right? Because we've rebelled against God. But the Apostle Paul also tells us in Romans 8, 15, that we're, we're adopted out of slavery and fear. He says, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba is this intimate phrase, meaning dearest father, as a child calls out to his, his dad, daddy. John and Paul are saying, listen, those who receive Christ, those who believe in him, they're not just saved from hell. They're also brought into the family of God. 
They're also given the privilege to call him daddy in the most intimate way. He says that should dispel fear. That should dispel discouragement. If we're overwhelmed or insecure or, or burdened, because of the love in Christ, we have a loving father. We can cry out to him, even if words fail us, right? We can call him Abba Father until our hearts, our hearts find comfort in him. He says, you're adopted by his love. But then he tells us how this happens. How does someone become a, children of, a child of God? Well, it's by this new birth. Verse 13, we're born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, if you're in the family of God, it's not determined by your physical birth, not of blood. It's not determined by your biological family, the will of the flesh. It's not even determined by your own will, the will of man. Meaning you can't adopt yourself into the family of God any more than an orphan can adopt themselves into a family. Salvation is of God. That's what John is saying in verse 13. He must open our eyes to see and receive his love. That's why he came. He came to turn the light switch on in the darkness so that we can see what a wonderful, great, eternal, coming, prophesied, loving, glorious Christ that we have. And here's the response to this that John gives elsewhere. He writes on, on the topic of God's love in 1 John 3.1. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That's John's response to this. As you think about Christ, how, how should we respond? I love what the New Testament, or what uh, the NIV says of 1 John 3.1. See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And so, John wants us to be overwhelmed with the greatness of Jesus. And that's what the Gospel of John is going to be for us. It's going to be week in and week out, for 33-something weeks, seeing the greatness of Jesus. But he wants us to be overwhelmed in such a way that it exposes our need for him. And we see, not only does he overwhelm us with his greatness, but he pursues us with his love. So as, as we consider the eternal Christ this morning, will we respond in worship and trust? As, as we consider the, the coming Christ in the scriptures, we'll be so thrilled with Jesus that we want to bear witness to him. And as we see the loving Christ, will we reject him or will we receive this love, this spirit of adoption that cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father. And I'll leave you with this quote from J.C. Ryle, the Anglican Bishop of Liverpool in the 1800s, this invitation to drink from Christ. Here's what he says. Christ is to the souls of men what the Son is to the world. He's the center and source of all spiritual light, warmth, Life, health, growth, beauty, and fertility. Like the sun, he shines for the common benefit of all mankind. For high and for low, for rich and for poor, for Jew and for Greek. Like the sun, he is free to all. All may look at him and drink health out of his light. So let's look at him this morning and drink health out of his light. Let's pray together.